From KCRW, this is Nocturne. What makes a place a home? Is it a space that feels like a refuge? Is it somewhere you sleep really, really well? Does it matter if it's a place you're not technically allowed to be? It, those are great conversations about, like, what, what's the first thing you move into a space to declare it a domestic space? Uh, and, and, the, and the answer for that was a couch. Like, the couch is just is the best object because you can sit on it and you can sleep on it. And it sort of invites people. So that was the first thing we brought in was a four-piece sectional couch. That's Michael Townsend. He's talking about an apartment he had in Providence, Rhode Island, with some friends. We bought something in the mall. There were times we would just walk it straight to where we lived. <laughs> so, and you know, and and I gotta say, you know, the, the the security guards there are not, you know, they're not trained to stop you from doing that. You might be wondering why there would be security guards at Michael's apartment. Well, the reason is that Michael's apartment was in the mall, like inside an actual mall, and for a very long time. The people who owned and operated the mall knew nothing about it. And so, like, how physically you just carried pieces of a couch through the mall? How did you get that in there? In broad daylight. We avoided the night for all those activities. Why? Why is that? Because with the nighttime comes sort of the sense of illicit behavior. If you do the same action at night, it seems like you're trying to hide something. <laughs> Where if you do it during the day, if you get caught, it doesn't seem as, as insane. Uh, and it also sort of worked with the ebb and flow of the mall. We were just part of the living organism of its, its daily activities. More after this. I'm Warren Alnick. On To The Point, if America ever used its thousands of nuclear weapons, it would be suicidal. In a nuclear war, there could be no winners. Everybody is a loser. All of civilization is at stake. We've known that for 75 years, but our weapons of mass destruction are still on hair-trigger alert. And just one man, President Trump, has the power to push the button. Is it finally time to make the world safer? On our To The Point podcast... You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. In 1997, artist Michael Townsend lived in Providence, Rhode Island. He lived and worked among other artists in a historic district of the city occupied by a collection of mill buildings from the 1800s. Around this time, the city of Providence was trying to revitalize, and in the process, they approved construction of a brand new mall, the Providence Place Mall. It was close to the mill district where Michael lived, and it was huge. When it was finished, it was the largest building in Rhode Island's history. And we sort of stood in awe watching it get built. Michael is curious by nature, so more than anything, he found the building itself fascinating, regardless of what was actually going to be in it. His daily running route took him past the construction site, and he watched as the building slowly took shape. 
we saw in essence every beam of it go up. And as it's being built, I start to sort of do mental maps of spaces. Uh, you know, that's going to be a store, that's going to be a storage space, that's going to be parking. But there was one part of the building that kept catching Michael's eye. Amidst all the bustle of construction, there seemed to be a spot where nothing was going on. And there were these two giant walls, which almost touched, but not quite. And I thought that was really odd. I was like, why isn't that just one wall? <laughs> like, why would you build two walls uh, with enough space to squeeze through them? The, the spot I was looking at was a couple stories up, but it didn't seem to meet the profile of either a storage space or a parking space or a store space. Instead, there was just this void next to the two walls. It was a room floating in the middle of the mall, a room with no purpose. I had never seen anything like it. And every time I ran by it, I, it was something that I would, I would think about. Fast forward a few years, the mall had become part of the city, and Michael had put the strange room out of his mind. He was busy doing art projects around the country. He does something called tape art, literally making giant murals in public spaces with tape. He still had his live workspace in the Mill District, in a building he shared with a number of other artists. They called it Fort Thunder. Unbeknownst to Michael and his neighbors, a group of developers, encouraged by the success of the Providence Place Mall, were setting their sights on the Mill District. They held a meeting at City Hall to lay out their proposal. And they said, okay, we got these 13 acres of, of uh, mill buildings working with the city. Perhaps we can convince them that the best route is we will knock them all down, every single one of them, and we will build a parking space for 800 cars, build a new supermarket, a strip mall that is one story high, has no windows facing the street, so you have to drive into it and no obvious pedestrian access. This is the pitch that they gave at a city hall meeting. And they were so proud of themselves too when they gave the presentation, they really felt like they were onto something. The developers actually used a computer algorithm to figure out where to place a new supermarket once they knocked the whole neighborhood down. And I got to see this computer printout, and it, it's sort of like a nuclear explosion map. You can sort of see the radius from each supermarket and their theoretical reach. And in the blank spot that was our neighborhood, they put an X directly on the building we were living. So Fort Thunder, and I, this is not an exaggeration, they put an X on where I sleep, just like a a predator drone targeted a strike on my bedroom. And it was basically like having a complete stranger put up a photograph of your house and be like, we've been thinking about it and we think we want to knock your house down <laughs> and, and make it a parking lot if it's cool with you. It was most decidedly not cool with Michael and his neighbors. And they fought the developers for a couple of years, trying to come up with a plan that would encourage economic growth, but preserve the character of the neighborhood. And did your apartment actually get saved or your apartment went away? Oh yeah, they fucking leveled that. <laughs> they came in with bulldozers and cranes and knocked that sucker flat. The mill residents did manage to save a lot of the buildings, just not Michael's. It's absolutely devastating. At its core, 
uh, it's, it was a grand lesson in feeling the feelings of what it looks like when your home is going to get destroyed. <laughs> During the course of the two years that we're doing this, I come to learn a shorthand about how the developers are looking at these spaces. And it, it appears that the only mantra they have is, if you see a space that's underdeveloped, you have a God-given responsibility to develop it. And that is, that sort of seemed to be the torch that they were walking behind all the time. For Michael and his friends, much of the emotional fallout from losing their home got channeled toward the mall, which was seen to represent the seed of development gone rampant in Providence. During the course of all this, we need to villainize something. So a lot of that villainy was sort of portrayed as coming from the mall. <laughs> We're like, the, the, if it weren't for the mall, these things wouldn't have happened. Some of Michael's peers had fantasies about getting back at the mall, but Michael had a different reaction. Like I said before, he's curious by nature. My attitude is like, well, do we, do we know the mall? Do we truly know this mall? And uh, a plan was hatched to sort of get to know it better, and the best way to know it better is to uh, just go live in it for a week. It is, in essence, getting to know your enemy. And for our own well-being, we really felt that we had to do it. It was an unconventional attempt at emotional healing. Michael and three others decided that they would move into the mall for one week. They couldn't leave, and they'd have to buy everything they needed in the mall. And maybe, at the end of it, they'd reclaim some sense of agency, some small feeling of power. The first day in the mall started with a sort of survivalist shopping spree. We went to Bed Bath & Beyond and bought a pillow. <laughs> and... Uh, emergency blanket and a flashlight and a face cloth and a sketchbook. The night comes. And Michael asks the obvious question. Where are we going to stay the night? Where is a safe port of harbor in this gigantic building where we can squirrel ourselves away? Michael's mind immediately went to that forgotten room or non-room that he'd seen all those years ago. He thought that that would be the perfect place to hole up for the night, if they could find it. I had no idea where we were going to actually find it. Absolutely none. It was like having a, a mental treasure map of a place that I thought existed. And what I do is simply, on the, on the exterior of the mall, go to explore where those two large vertical walls had been built. Those, those walls that had that, that foot and a half gap between them. And... This was a guess. <laughs> I didn't know whether that space would still be there. I didn't know where it would go. I, I knew that it was pointed in the right direction. And sure enough, if you are, are slight of figure, you can turn yourself sideways and slide into this space. And the second you are two feet into it, you're, in, you're inside the, the bowels of the mall. You are, you are navigating the interior. <laughs> Once you're, once you're in, at that point, you are exploring a, a system of caverns, shall we say. Long, weird, vertical caverns. There are no guardrails. There, there are places where it drops off a story and a half or two stories. Imagine, if you will, scurrying along a cliff. It is not for the faint of heart. The caverns were dark, illuminated only by the beam of Michael's flashlight pitch dark. You're looking into a black abyss. 
because it just falls down into the lower levels of the mall. And then this series of chambers ultimately give you access to this space. The space was the size of a small apartment. It was filled with dirt and construction debris. It had literally been forgotten. And it was a thrill and relief and joy to physically find it and be like, this is it, this is what I remember. When Michael showed the rest of the group what he had found, almost immediately their ideas about the scheme started changing. The initial plan had been to spend a week at the mall, but the way they saw it, they were sitting on 750 square feet of underutilized space. And they asked themselves, what would a developer do? Because after all, if you see a space that's underdeveloped, you have a God-given responsibility to develop it. So we, we decided that perhaps the absolute best thing we could do is just build a condo. Like that is, that is always the, that's always the answer. If you're not sure what to do with the space, just make it a condo. The plan was no longer to live in the mall for a week. It was now simply to live in the mall and turn the small secret space into an apartment. So with all of the excitement of new homeowners, Michael and his friends got to work. Step one, of course, was cleaning. Cleaning, cleaning, and more cleaning. So we were, we were going into the space and removing the debris that was there, which is it's sort of like, you know, it, it, like in a prison break movie when you see somebody, you know, chiseling a hole through the wall in their prison cell, and then they they fill their pants with the, the debris and go out into the courtyard and sort of like shake it onto the ground. We were doing that, but a larger scale. We were literally filling up our backpacks with just dirt and grime and then, and then carrying it out of the mall and getting rid of it. And for every backpack full of debris they took out, they'd bring one back full of something needed to make this home. Gallon jugs of water to help clean and drink, clamp lights and extension cords for illumination, which they'd plugged into the mall's internal power system. The space only had walls on three sides. Where the fourth wall would be was just a ledge, which dropped down a story into a storage space with a door to a stairwell. So they carried in 2,000 pounds of cinder block and built a wall, both to prevent a nasty fall and to camouflage the room from anyone who might venture into the cavern complex from various other entrances. We went and got a door that was uh, an exact mirror of the doors they use in the mall. So if you were to find it, it would look no different than, unless you were looking really closely, At first glance, it just looks exactly like it had been built originally. Finally, it was time to decorate. Anything we could buy at the mall, we would. So a low table came in on top of that, proudly perched with a television and our PlayStation. The PS3, the game of choice was uh, Grand Theft Auto's uh, San Andreas. We bought something in the mall, there were times we would just walk it straight to where we lived. But if we couldn't buy it at the mall, we'd have to bring it into the mall. And that's for the large pieces like the sectional couch or the, the, the china hutch. Michael and his friends continued to add to the decor of their secret apartment. And they brought in things that would make the space feel comfortable and inviting. Aside from the cinder block wall and the homey furniture, they had a rug, a plant, a photo album. The apartment had a sort of ad hoc kitchen and bathroom. It wasn't perfect, but they made it work. We would stay there for several weeks in a row. 
So that means sleeping there every single night for weeks on end. Out of the emotional rubble of Fort Thunder, the artist's space in the Mill District, Michael had found a new refuge, a sort of magical secret hideout that was both thrilling and strangely relaxing. I think a lot of times when we were there, we were definitely in this strange space of being more present in a very real way because all the distractions were not there. That space was so stripped down uh, that it really made you just be with yourself. And but I always slept well and, and woke up sort of refreshed and focused. I've had deeper sleeps at the mall than I do you know, back at my, my proper studio apartment space. It is, in essence, at its root, very quiet. It feels surprisingly quiet because you're in such a gargantuan space. And so since you're surrounded by cavernous, empty spaces, I think it's sort of, if it's, if it's possible to amplify quiet, I think that's what was happening. <laughs> This wasn't the first built space that Michael had explored at night, but the mall was on an entirely different scale. How many buildings do we ever actually get to hang out in at night? You know, so, you know, so, so few. And to be in a building like that, that's just empty at night is incredible. The main thing that sort of stood out was that the soundscape was very different than anywhere else I've spent in Providence, partially because it was close to the highway. So you have the constant muffle of the highway going by, but you're in a secret space. And so you're, you're stuck in that, that sort of in-between world where you're, you're completely hidden and you're not supposed to be known, but tens of thousands of people are, are zooming by you, like really, really close. We had a constant reminder of the pacing of the mall filling up and emptying out. So we wake up in the morning, you'd hear it slowly pick up, slowly pick up, dun-dun, dun dun just means everyone's going to work. And if you spend a day in that space, you get to hear the, the whole thing from the sound of it going by really quickly to the middle of the night where silence just punctuated by 18-wheelers just scooting by with their TIE fighter noises. There were no windows in the secret room, which contributed to the feeling of dislocation, there was one tiny crack in the wall that let in the slightest bit of light from the outside world. And at night, one of the really cool things was that the slit of light would come through and cast onto the wall behind us sort of an upside down image of the highway. The slit turned the room into a camera obscura, casting an inverted image on the wall behind them that kept time with the sounds. Michael and his friends spent hours savoring these small, mesmerizing details of the space. And when they weren't enjoying their secret apartment, they were enjoying the mall, not as shoppers, but as residents. Sometimes they would just roam the mall with no goal in mind, observing its many moods. And if you're inside the mall proper, walking around, you at night, all the stores eventually close. There's a food court directly beneath where the cinema is. That continues to have foot traffic. It also has 
natural sunlight coming in. So you actually get to experience the sun fall and then the people disappear. And there are times when that entire building probably had maybe 10 people in it, you know, like in the middle of the night. There'd be security officers, there'd be cleaning staff, uh, there'd be people working late in some businesses, maybe stocking things, but you essentially empty. And it's a really wonderful time because it's, it's like having a public park four levels deep all to yourself. And in those moments, there's a sense of ownership and I just feel really good. And as Michael and his friends settled into their secret home, this space born of mischief and curiosity became important to them and it became personal. And I know this sounds like an, an odd misclassification, but we didn't treat it as an art project. We weren't viewing it in that way. This was not a thing to be seen. It was not something to be discovered. To this point, the eight artists who inhabited the space had a rule. Don't share it with anyone. Don't physically bring anyone here who wasn't involved in the making of it. So a lot of my very, very good and best friends never saw the space. Someone saw the space, though. Someone had broken in and stolen the PlayStation and some personal items. But they left the silverware. They left the TV. We're like, this is a very odd burglary. Like, they didn't take the things of value. They only took the things that were, like, super personal. Michael and his friends were spooked. They had managed to hide the apartment for four years. But now someone knew about the room. Someone who could come back at any time. So they changed things up. They decided from now on, they'd only stay there at night when the chances of being caught were low. Never during the day. Also, they were extra careful when they came and went. And the rule to not share it with anyone was more important than ever. And I'm the one who uh, took that rule and broke it. Michael was hosting a visiting artist from Hong Kong. Her name was Jaffa. He was driving her to the bus station on her way out of town. We're driving past the mall and I say to myself, what can it hurt? <laughs> How could this possibly backfire on me? So I brought her into the space. Uh, her mind was absolutely blown. You, know, you gotta remember that this is at the peak of its build out. Michael showed Jaffa everything, the couch, the lights, the television. At this point, Michael and one of his friends had made a new plan to live in the mall apartment full time for a year. They had figured out a way to tap into the building's plumbing to get running water, and were working on a full kitchen and a flush toilet. They were days away from installing a wood floor. After four years of work, the apartment was on the verge of feeling like a real home. And when we're leaving, we are in this storage space, and we are reaching for the door to exit into the fire stairwell. I hear a walkie-talkie on the other side of the door. The very same door that they had taken such pains to install to help disguise the apartment from the outside. So the door opened, and when the door opens, Jaffa and I are standing behind the door. The door closes, and it's three dudes in ties and sports jackets. Like sort of the you know, sort of an authoritarian nightmare. They turn, they see, they see me and Jaffa, and I think my exact words were, surprise. Uh, they knew who I was instantly because of the photo albums. And 
I realized in that moment, I, I internalized that it's over. It turned out that the earlier break-in had been the work of two of the mall's newest security guards. Instead of removing everything, they had taken the personal items in hopes of identifying Michael and his friends. Now that Michael had been foolish enough to come back during the day, they had their man. Michael and Jaffa were held by mall security, taken into police custody and interrogated. Jaffa was eventually let go, but Michael soon found himself standing in front of a judge in criminal court. And by the time I get to court, the mall has hired a lawyer, and they launch into all these details about the uh, illegal things that I have done. And they use the phrase, this gave Mr. Townsend access to an apartment that they had built over several years that had the following things in it and goes on to list in detail what the apartment looked like. Four-piece sectional couches, entertainment systems, vagina, hutch with matching silverware. And, and the more details this lawyer gives, the more the judge just looks around and he's like, what's happening here? And the judge hustles advisors close to him. I hear him whispering. And then he looks up, looks me dead in the eyes, and he goes, this is not a criminal act. We're not, we're not sure exactly what it was, but this is not a crime. In the end, the judge found that Michael was not guilty of criminal intent, gave him a misdemeanor for trespassing, and sent him on his way. Michael had lived on and off in the secret apartment for nearly four years, and it was going to cost him almost nothing. But that doesn't mean he got away entirely scot-free. Just before Michael left the mall, the mall security team handed him a piece of paper. It's this standardized manila piece of paper that has a map of the mall. And it has this red line around the whole thing. And it says, you can't cross that red line. And you have to sign it before you leave the mall and make it clear you're never coming back. And did they ban you forever? For life? For life. Oh, it's for life. I have never broken this rule. So in the wake of losing his home in the Mill District, Michael decided to get to know his enemy by living in the mall. And in the process, he inadvertently created a new special place, only to lose that as well. Of course, the secret apartment was never really his. He had no right to it in the first place. But that doesn't change the fact that it had become a part of him. Michael told me that the space lives with him as a perpetually interrupted dream, one that's tinged with both joy and loss. Do you miss the apartment? Oh, I absolutely miss it. Absolutely. It is from another life. <laughs> it, it feels uh, no different than if I had lived and gotten very attached to a home somewhere in the Midwest and then left it, <laughs> even though it's only a block away from where I live right now. So if, if it left the hands of this company, would you go find your apartment again? Oh, yeah, if I ever had a chance to, like, for real go back in, I, I would. Uh, I was informed that they took down our cinder block wall and then reused the cinder blocks to block off the passage that we used to pass through to get into the mall. <laughs> yeah, they reused our own materials. So you really can never go back? I can never go back.
You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW. Our senior editor there is Nick White. Nocturne also receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. You can find information about the show, including music credits, episode art, and information about Michael Townsend, tape art, and the Secret Mall apartment at nocturnepodcast.org. You can find a version of this episode at 99% Invisible, a really cool podcast about design. Many thanks to the 99% Invisible team. Thanks for listening.